Uh, what, what would your final thoughts be uh, if you knew that you were about to die? What would your final thoughts be if you knew that you were about to die? Of course, we don't, we don't know. One day, unless the Lord Jesus returns, one day we'll all find out. One day we'll all know what our final thoughts will be. We'll get to that point. At the moment, I guess, most of us don't really know what would go through our heads uh, then. But it's a question that's still worth thinking about, I think. Because the question gets to the heart of who we are and how we see ourselves and what matters most of all to us. So let me just ask it again. What would your final thoughts be? What might you want your final thoughts to be if you knew that you were about to die? Uh, This morning, uh, we're taking a bit of a break from your your series, and we're looking at the book of Jonah, Jonah uh, chapter 2. The story of Jonah is a great story, uh, and uh, for many of us, I'm sure, it's a very familiar uh, story. Uh, God told the prophet Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach against it, but Jonah refuses He flees in the opposite direction down to a place called Joppa where he catches a ship bound for Tarshish. And the big lesson of the first chapter of the book of Jonah is that the Lord is the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. He is a God who does as he pleases and his plans cannot be thwarted. And as we look at what's going on, Uh, with the war in the Ukraine. It's a very good lesson for us to hold on to. He is the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. He is a God who does as he pleases and his plans cannot be thwarted. Uh, God sends uh, a great storm to batter the ship that Jonah is on. Uh, And the storm is so great that these sailors, they fear for their lives. And when they learn that Jonah is fleeing from God, they grow even more afraid. Jonah tells them to throw him overboard, but they try hard to row back to land. It's no use. The Lord is the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. He does as he pleases. His plans cannot be thwarted. They try to row back to land, but he ratchets up the storm. It grows worse and worse. And in the end, they cry out for mercy and they hurl Jonah overboard. And immediately the storm stops. It's just like someone has flicked a switch. And at that, the sailors become even more afraid. And we're told that they turn to God. And these pagan sailors, they put their faith in him. And Jonah chapter 2, which, um, which was read for us by Phil a few moments ago, it is a story of what happens next. God provides this great fish to rescue Jonah from certain death. I guess it's probably one of the most well-known stories uh, in the whole of the Bible. But interestingly, did you notice as Phil read it? It, it only takes up two verses out of the whole thing. Uh, verse 17 of chapter 1, verse 10 
of chapter 2. Have a look at the story. Uh, Verse 17 of chapter 1. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Uh, And then the story picks up again. Verse 10. And the Lord commanded the fish. And it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Lots of people struggle with that story, to be honest with you. It sounds a bit far-fetched. I don't know whether you know it. There's an old uh, George Gershwin song. You may have come across the Jamie Cullum version of it. It ain't necessarily so. Does anybody know that song? I won't sing it for you, but it ain't necessarily so. It ain't necessarily so. The things that you're liable to read in the Bible, it ain't necessarily so. Jonah, he lived in a whale. Jonah, he lived in a whale. He made his home in that fish's abdomen. Jonah, he lived in a whale. Things that you're liable to read in the Bible, it ain't necessarily so. You get the point. The thing is, if the Lord really is the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land, that is not too hard for him to do. He can do whatever he likes, even if to us it seems incredibly far-fetched. It's not too hard for him to do that. Some of you will, uh, will know of the American pastor, Tim Keller. He says that many people today come to the Bible with this assumption that all miracles are impossible. That they, they've got this belief that they're just impossible. That couldn't happen. But, but he says that their skepticism is just that. It is a belief itself that you cannot prove. And I think that's helpful for us. You cannot possibly prove that miracles don't happen. People say they don't. You can't prove that. Now, there's no suggestion here at all that this is anything other than history. It really happened. The great fish is only mentioned in verse 17 and verse 10. It's all very matter of fact. Because actually the focus is not really on the big fish. The focus is on what happens in between. Now, if you've got a Bible, just have a look at chapter 2 for me. And I wonder what you notice. When you look, just look at the page. And what do you notice That the rest of Jonah, can you see this? Just by looking at it, the rest of Jonah is a story. You you see that from the way it's laid out. But chapter 2 is different. Can you see? Chapter 2 is a poem. In fact, if you didn't know it, you might even, and all we had were were, were verses 2 to 9, you might even think that this was one of the Psalms. And in fact, it is very similar to a number of the Psalms that you get in the Old Testament, which begs a question, what is going on? Why do you get a poem, a song, stuck in the middle of a story? Well, think about what poetry is. Think about what poetry does. Poetry makes you stop and think. Poetry makes you Slow down. 
Interestingly, several times in the book of Jonah, God provides something for Jonah. So here he provides a great fish. Later on, he'll provide a leafy plant and a worm and a scorching east wind. And each time, the thing that God provides for Jonah is meant to teach Jonah a lesson. And that's true here as well. God is teaching Jonah something. And we need to pay attention to that lesson. Chapter 2 is the cry of a drowning man. Jonah is on the brink of death, and yet God wonderfully delivers him. And in verse 9, Jonah shouts out, Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And that is the turning point of the book of Jonah. Have a look at verse one, uh, chapter 1 and verse 1. Uh, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up against me. What happens next? Verse 3. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. Now jump over to chapter 3 verse 1 and have a look. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. What happens next? Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and he went to Nineveh. And the question is, what happens? What what has changed? And the answer is chapter 2, verse 9. Jonah has experienced God's salvation for himself. And God wants us to learn that lesson too. Salvation comes from the Lord. Salvation comes from the Lord. But I, I think there's more. The, the thing about poetry is that it, give wor- it gives words to how we feel. Poetry is not just information that we read and learn. You feel it. You feel it inside you. It gives words to the, the, the emotions that we have. You see, the point is that God wants us not just to know that salvation comes from him. God wants us to feel that in our bones, as it were. He wants us to feel what Jonah feels. So let's try and do that. There are three lessons for us. Let me show you what they are. Here's the first. Three lessons. Here's the first. Feel Jonah's sense of distress. Feel Jonah's sense of distress. This is verses uh, 1 to 6. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight. Yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. 
At this point, Jonah is he's safely inside the fish, if you can be safely inside a fish. He, he recalls what went through his mind as he sank down to the very bottom of the sea. And not surprisingly, Jonah is in great distress. As he sinks deeper and deeper in the ocean, he can feel his life literally slipping away from him. And down and down and down he goes. And with every passing moment, his situation becomes more and more desperate. Now, although it was the sailors who threw Jonah overboard, Jonah knows that actually God is the one who's really behind this. Uh, Did you notice in verse 3, he says, you hurled me into the depths. But notice that Jonah isn't distressed simply because he's drowning. No, Jonah is distressed because God has abandoned him. Did you see that? In verse 2, Jonah calls out from deep in the realm of the dead. The the realm of the dead, it's a place in the Bible that nobody in their right mind wants to go. The place of the dead, it's a place of chaos and death. It's a place of punishment. It's a place where you are totally and utterly separated from God. And in chapter 2, You get these verses, verses 2 to 6, which form a little section of their own. And right at the very heart of this little section is this terrible, awful, desperate cry in verse 4. I have been banished from your sight. And the point is we are meant to stop And think. To feel what Jonah feels. To get a sense of how desperate it must be. To sink down, down, down. To feel threatened. And surrounded and trapped. With no way back and no hope. And no way out. To feel yourself to be utterly abandoned by God himself. Feel Jonah's sense of distress. In some way, I think Jonah is meant to point us forward to the Lord Jesus. As we listen to Jonah's cry of distress, I think we're meant to hear a faint echo of another cry of distress. I think we're meant to look forward and see a land plunged into darkness and a man hanging on a cross Crying out in distress, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As awful as Jonah's experience was, as he plunges down into the water, Jesus experienced a depth of distress beyond anything that you and I could ever imagine. 
feel Jonah's sense of distress. Jonah only has himself to blame for being hurled into the sea. Jesus, on the other hand, he willingly accepted that distress, not for his own sins, but for mine and for yours. As he hung on the cross, the Bible tells us that Jesus absorbed the full force of God's anger against sin. And if you, if you want a sense of how distressing that must have been for the Lord Jesus, picture him the night before he died as he prays in the garden of Gethsemane. That the gospel writers tell us that as he prayed, instead of finding peace, which is what you might imagine, Jesus experiences something terrible, something desperate, something awful. In fact, we're told that it was so awful that, that God sent an angel from heaven to strengthen him in his distress. In his gospel, Luke tells us that Jesus is in anguish. Luke says, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. And the word that, the word that, that you, Luke uses there is agony. Jesus experiences in that moment something so shocking that his body, his, his human nature simply cannot take it anymore. And the question is, as you look at Jesus in the garden... What could cause him such anguish? What could cause him such agony, such distress? This is a man who up to this point looks like he has been total, in total and utter control of every situation in front of him. And yet here in the garden, he is in such profound distress that his body sweat drops of blood. That the answer to what causes such distress for the Lord Jesus is found in the prayer that he has just prayed. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. That cup that he refers to, it's, it's symbolic. It's not a real, literal cup. It, it represents God's anger against sin. My sin, your sin. His perfect, holy hatred of sin. And as he prays, Jesus begins to taste what is in that cup. Jesus begins to experience what he will face as he hangs on the cross. On the cross, Jesus will take that cup and he will drink it to the bottom. He will drain it to its dregs. He will take the full force of God's anger against sin. And he will be forsaken by his father. He will be abandoned and banished. And he will do it for us. As we sense Jonah's distress. I think we're meant to sense something of Jesus' distress too. On the cross. Jesus is hurled into the sea of God's anger. He went down to the depths of the realm of the dead, 
And he was banished from God's sight. But unlike Jonah, Jesus sinks down even further still to experience death itself. And he did it so that you and I might never, ever have to experience that distress for ourselves. I think we're meant to feel something of his distress. And then I think we're meant to stop and wonder and marvel that God the Son, the Son of God, should be willing to go through all of that for me and for you. Feel Jonah's sense of distress. Uh, Secondly, uh, sing Jonah's song of praise. Sing Jonah's song of praise. This is verses 6 to 9. Of course, that is not the end for Jonah. Uh, In his distress, Jonah calls out to the Lord and he answers him. Look at verse uh, 6. But you, Lord, my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols... Turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed. I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. God is wonderfully kind to Jonah. He is surprisingly kind to Jonah. And in his kindness, God rescues Jonah from certain death. He provides a great fish to swallow Jonah. And now inside the fish, Jonah shouts out in joyful praise, salvation comes from the Lord. Salvation comes from the Lord. And in that too, Jonah points us forward to the Lord Jesus. We're told in the book of Acts that when his life ebbed away, God freed him from the agony of death. In the words of the Apostles' Creed, Jesus was crucified, died, and was buried. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead. Salvation comes from the Lord. But when Jonah says those words, salvation comes from the Lord, what he's saying is that that salvation belongs to God and to God alone. It doesn't belong to anybody else. Salvation is all God's work. It's not that God does part of the work and then we do a bit of the work. No, salvation belongs to the Lord. God and God alone is the one who saves us. We can't and we don't save us ourselves. And of course, that is the good news at the very heart of the Christian faith. Salvation comes from the Lord. The New Testament puts it like this, for it is by grace that you have been saved, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one 
can boast. Can you feel it driving that point home? It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works. So that no one can boast. Can you see? Salvation comes from the Lord. He does everything and we do Nothing. It's not that God does 90% and we do 10%. It's not even that God does 99% or 99.5% and we contribute just a little bit of a percent. Salvation comes from the Lord. Even the faith by which we lay hold of what God has done for us, even that faith is a gift from God. Salvation comes from the Lord. Let me ask you this morning, have you laid hold of that gift? God offers to everyone who will turn to him the gift of salvation. Have you taken hold of that gift for yourself? Can you say with Jonah, salvation comes from the Lord? And if you haven't, if you can't say that with Jonah, Can I ask you, do you mind, what is stopping you from laying hold of it? What is stopping you from receiving that gift that God holds out? The church family here would love to help you. Why not talk to someone afterwards if you would like to find out more about that? Salvation comes from the Lord. But you know what? As we grasp that, two things naturally happen. Two things happen. The the first thing that happens is that we start to sing. Christians love to sing, even if we can't sing, even if uh, we're as flat as a pancake. Christians, we love to sing. Now, why do we love to sing? Why do you come to a, a meeting like this and you hear Christians singing? Why do you hear them singing songs of praise? Why do you hear them singing joyful songs? Why is that? We love to sing because we know that we too were like Jonah. We know that we were deep in the miry depths and God lifted us up. From deep in the realm of the dead, God heard our cry and he lifted us In a few moments, we're going to sing one of my very favorite hymns, Amazing Grace by John Newton. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. When you grasp that salvation comes from the Lord, you can't help but sing. But here's the other thing that... that that happens, that we can't help. We start to change. That that, that grace that, that lifted us up and that saved us, that grace, it starts to change us. Which is why when you get to chapter three and the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time, this time Jonah obeys. Because God is at work in him and he is changing him. And the same God who's at work in Jonah changing him wonderfully is a God at work in his people changing me and changing you. Salvation comes 
from the Lord. Feel Jonah's sense of distress. And then sing Jonah's song of praise. But there's one more thing, I think. Thirdly and finally, beware Jonah's spiritual blindness. Beware Jonah's spiritual blindness. On the face of it, chapter 2 it is a great picture of rescue. It's a, a, a wonderful story of God rescuing a dying man. But when you look closely, not everything is as it seems. N- notice three things in particular. Firstly, notice that Jonah doesn't actually confess his sins. Did you spot that? Yes, Jonah calls for help, doesn't he? Yes, Jonah even acknowledges uh, as he's uh, sinking down, down, down that he has been banished from God's sight. But can you see nowhere does Jonah actually confess his sins and say sorry to God? Now that is remarkable. It's extraordinary, especially when you consider what Jonah has done. Jonah has fled from the face of the Lord. His behavior is utterly wicked. And yet Jonah doesn't actually confess his sins. Notice something else. Jonah thinks he's better than others. Uh, Listen to what he says in verse 8. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. Now, on one level, Jonah is right. Those who worship other gods, they do turn their backs on God's surprising kindness. They reject his salvation. They will not be lifted out of the pit of death and hell. They'll never get to sing the song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. On one level, Jonah is right. But on another level, there is something I think about this that really grates. Listen to Jonah again. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed. I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. It feels like there's just a little bit too much of Jonah going on at this point. And the irony is that while Jonah is congratulating himself, for offering sacrifices and making vows and not being like all those other people. The irony is in the story that the sailors get there before Jonah. Have a look at Jonah chapter 1 verse 16. At this the men greatly feared the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. I don't know what you think. You can tell me afterwards. But as I listen to Jonah here, he reminds me of somebody else. Jonah reminds me of the Pharisee in one of the stories that Jesus told. Do you remember the one? The one who goes to the temple to pray and ends up congratulating himself that he's not like other men. God, I thank you, he said, that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week 
and give a tenth of all I get. Jonah thinks he's better than others. I don't know what you think. Tell me about it afterwards. Jonah reminds me of someone else too. He reminds me quite a bit of me. How easy it is to pray, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Jonah thinks he's better than others. Third thing, Jonah is blind to his sin. The the book of Jonah is not just about Jonah. Jonah represents the people of Israel. And at this point in their history, the people of Israel are in terrible danger. If you read the book of 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 14, Israel is ruled by King Jeroboam, son of Jehoash. And we're told that he did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nabat, which he had caused Israel to commit. Jeroboam, son of Nabat, had made two golden calves for the people to worship. He had put one in the north of the kingdom and one in the south of the kingdom so that the people didn't have to leave the kingdom of Israel and go south to Jerusalem to the temple to worship God. In other words, as Jonah prays in the belly of the fish, at that moment, the people are clinging to worthless idols back home. And the irony is that Jonah can't see it. And unless the people come to their senses, they will turn away from God's love for them. And that is why Jonah chapter 2 is not a story, it's a poem. Because we're meant to stop and think. God is teaching us a lesson. The question is, could this be me? Could this be me? be me? Could I be so blind to my sin that I sit here thanking God that I am not like other men and all the while that is exactly what I'm like? Uh, As a church, we've been, um, we're reading through the Bible and we were recently in the book of Hebrews And at one point, the writer to the Hebrews uses this very striking little phrase. He talks about what he calls sin's deceitfulness. Sin's deceitfulness. What he's saying is that sin hides itself from us. Sin disguises itself in our lives. It, It stops us from seeing ourselves as we really are. So that all of us have this tendency to sit here and pray like Jonah and congratulate ourselves that we're not like other people and yet that is exactly what we're like. What one Christian writer puts it like this, see what you think. Uh, I don't know about you, he says, but I have no problem seeing the sin of friends and members of my family 
However, I am often surprised and offended when mine is revealed. We must give up the erroneous thought that no one knows us better than we know ourselves. He goes on, none of us have the gift of complete self-awareness. So while sin still lives inside us, there will be inaccuracies in the way that we see ourselves because there will still be pockets of spiritual blindness in us. And I think that is exactly what is going on with Jonah in chapter 2. For all that Jonah rightly recognizes that salvation comes from the Lord, Jonah still does not see himself or his people clearly. And although Jonah is willing in chapter 3 to go and preach to the people of Nineveh, we shouldn't be at all surprised when we get to chapter 4 and Jonah goes and sits down outside the city in a fit of anger and rage. And the point is, unless Israel starts to see herself clearly, unless Israel repents of her idolatry, she will end up. Banished from God's sight, turning her back on the God who has loved them and loved them and loved them and loved them. Could this be me? What about us? If none of us have the gift of complete self-awareness, if none of us see ourselves as we really are, what is the answer to that? Well, the writer to the book of Hebrews, who talks about the deceitfulness of sin, he says the answer is this. It is meeting together to encourage one another, and not just weekly, but daily. Helping each other to see ourselves as we really are. To to hold up the mirror of God's word to, to one another. So that we see ourselves as we are. Not as we think we are. So that we won't be blinded by our sin. And harden our hearts against God. And turn away from him. What would your final thoughts be if you knew that you were about to die. Chapter 2 is the last words of a dying man. It's a poem, a song that's meant to make us stop and think and feel what he's going through. To feel his sense of distress and to remember the distress the Lord Jesus Endured for us to sing his song of praise and then to beware his spiritual blindness. Could this be me? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much that you've given us this song, this poem, to make us stop and think. To point us forward to the distress that the Lord Jesus endured for us on the cross. 
Father, we, we scarce can take it in. That your son should be willing to endure all of that for us. To sing a song of praise, salvation comes from the Lord. Father, how we praise you. That salvation is all your doing and none of our doing. Father, we recognize that even if the tiniest proportion was down to us, we could not possibly do it. How we praise you that salvation comes from the Lord. And then, Father, to look at ourselves in the mirror of your word. And to ask you to show us those pockets of spiritual blindness that we have in our lives. Father, please would you search us and test us. See if there is any offensive way in us. And lead us in the way everlasting, we pray. 